Let's say amen together, church. Amen. Amen. We'll go ahead and take a seat, everybody, and let's turn to the passage that was just read, Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 30. We're going to study today Romans 9, 30 through 10, 4. Let me welcome all of you who are online right now. Thanks for being a part of us, uh, our service, and let me invite you as well to take your Bible and turn to Romans 9 with us. Uh, the singing was really spirited this morning. I, good job out of you, church. I don't know if it's the extra hour of sleep or maybe that you guys all had candy for breakfast or something. I don't know. But yeah, I, I was really inspired by that. And I want to I add to that worship through singing, through worship uh, by studying God's word. Can we do that today? I really want to encourage you to to focus and pay attention now as we look at this important passage of Scripture in the book of Romans. And I want to start this morning, let me just kind of set the groundwork for us by uh, quoting one of my favorite preachers, Charles Spurgeon. So this is a quote from a Baptist preacher in the 19th century. And, And I want to start with this quote this morning because I think this quote perfectly and clearly encapsulates the message of our passage today. Romans 9, 30 through 10, 4. Spurgeon said this. He said, the same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. I have found that to be true. The same sun, S-U-N, or you might say S-O-N, capital S-O-N, which melts wax hardens clay. There's an old proverb that's very similar. I think it's an African proverb. I'm I'm not sure about this. But it, it goes like this. The same boiling water that softens the potato hardens the egg. Y'all heard that before? That's good. And I can't speak for that proverb, but the idea behind Spurgeon's proverb in the sun is, here's what he's trying to get at with that statement. Humans are unpredictable. They are. You take the same thing. You take, you know, sometimes they respond this way, and then other people respond the exact opposite way to the same stimulus. They do different things. The same cause The sun, the boiling water, can bring about two completely different effects. The same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And if I could summarize the passage for you today, what we're looking at in Romans 9 and 10, if I could summarize that in one sentence, it would be this. For some, Christ Jesus is the rock of salvation. For others, Christ Jesus is the rock of stumbling. For some, he is the rock of salvation. For others, he is the rock of stumbling. That's what this passage is about that we're looking at. And the question for you this morning is, which rock is Christ for you? What kind of rock is he for you? Is he the rock of salvation? Or is he the rock of stumbling? And by the way, there's, you know, as Liz was reading that just now, you heard, I think you should have about the rock, the stone in that passage. You might have wondered, well, who's, who's the rock there? Just, you know, for the record, it's not Dwayne Johnson, okay? The rock, very clearly in this passage, is Jesus Christ. 
He's the rock in this passage. And the question for you today is, what kind of rock is Jesus for you? There's no question about Jesus if he's the rock. He's the rock. The question is, what kind of rock is he for you? Is he the rock of salvation or is he the rock of stumbling for you? What I want to do today is build an argument for why you should trust Christ as the rock of your salvation. That's what I want to do. So here we go, Harvest Decatur. Four reasons to trust Christ as the rock of your salvation. Here's the first reason. Because Christ gives you a righteousness not your own. Doesn't that sound good? Christ gives you a righteousness not your own. Let's look at verse 30 together in our Bibles. Paul says, what shall we say? Paul. If you remember last week, Paul was explaining why it was that so many Gentiles are coming into the kingdom of God and becoming part of the kingdom of God and, and why so few Jews like Paul are embracing Christ. Why is that the case? And Paul's answer in Romans 9 is that God had predicted it that way in the Old Testament. God had said this would happen, and also God had sovereignly purposed it that way. Paul spent a lot of time in Romans 9 talking about God's sovereignty and salvation. Now Paul is going to transition and talk about the other side of that equation, human responsibility. So this is about the human responsibility side of that equation. And he starts by asking this question, what should we say then? How should we respond to all of this in Romans 9? Well, says Paul, here's the conclusion. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Now, this is a bit of review here. So just stay with me because we, we've covered this already in the book of Romans, but it's good to review. Paul's reviewing here. What, what Paul's telling us is something he's told us already in Romans, and that's that the law will fail us because we cannot fulfill it completely. And besides that, the law's purpose was never to save us. It was to point out our sinfulness so that we turn to Christ, so that we cry out to God in repentance and faith. It's, it's so that we might realize that we're sinners that need a Savior. And what Paul says here is that it was easier for the Gentiles in Paul's day to do that. Because it was easy to convince them that they're dirty, rotten sinners. Oh, yeah, that's true. I'm going right to faith. I'm not even going to try to fulfill the law. Whereas there were others, the Jews, those who were maybe moralistic, those who were more legalistic, who were embracing the law. Paul's saying they're having a hard time. They're having a hard time realizing, struggling. I mean, this is struggling with their own sinfulness and their need for Christ. And we see that even in Jesus's ministry, don't we? I mean, why did the Pharisees get so angry? Why did the rich young ruler get, get so depressed? It's because they trusted the law, the law, the law, the law. And Jesus says, you can't do enough to save yourself by the law. You need help. They didn't like that. They didn't want that. They wanted the power in and of themselves. They just couldn't get it. And I, you know, just as a parallel in our own day, I think it does parallel in our own day. I think for some people who come maybe from a really sinful background, you don't really have to work that hard to convince them they're a rotten sinner. I mean, for some of you, it's like, yeah, yeah, that, that's me. I, whew, I, needed, I needed help. Whereas there might be some who 
grew up in the church. Mom and dad went to church. We did everything right. We're moralistic. We follow the law. We do everything. You have a harder time realizing, I hope you don't in this church, but so let me tell you that you're a rotten sinner too. And you need Jesus. All of us need Jesus. That's part of Romans' argument here, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus dealt with that. We dealt with this in our own day. Just as an example of this, think, think about in Jesus' ministry. Do you, remember, do you remember the tax collector Matthew? Remember that guy? Remember Jesus' interaction with Matthew? By the way, the name Matthew is derived from this Greek word, mathetes, which means disciple. Matthew's name in the book of Mark wasn't Matthew, it was Levi. And Levi is a good Jewish name. But Levi, the tax collector, was not a good Jew, not according to the people who were living in his day. He was a dirty, rotten sinner. He was a tax collector. And Jesus called him to become a disciple. And and you remember how the Pharisees got, got so upset about that. Why does your teacher eat with sinners and tax collectors? What did Jesus say in response to that? He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now let's think this out a little bit. Were the Pharisees well? Were they well? No. Were they sick? Yes, they were. They were sinners too. But they were so conceited and arrogantly blinded by their self-righteousness, they couldn't see their need for the great physician, Jesus Christ. But Levi, the tax collector, he didn't have any misconceived notions about his own sinful. Yeah, I'm a sinner. I'm all, I'm all in. And so Jesus called him to be a Mathetes, a Matthew, a disciple. Come follow me, said Jesus. Jesus calls the sick, not the healthy, the sinners, not the righteous. Paul is saying the same thing here. Gentiles who know that they can't save themselves with law observance are coming into the kingdom more readily than the Jews that think they can get saved by observing the law. So what did the, Gen- what did the Gentiles do essentially here? They just skipped the law. Yeah, we're not going to deal with the law. It's not going to work. Let's go to grace. We, we choose grace. I remember when I first started traveling abroad, this was several years ago, I went into some countries and I was shocked at the prevalence of cell, cell phones in some of these other countries. And I mean, this is like 15 years ago, but I went to, to the Czech Republic and everybody had a cell phone. All, all the kids had a cell I didn't even have a cell phone. And I was like, wait, why do all these kids, why does everybody in this country have cell phones? And what I learned, and then, and then I went to Africa and similarly, you know, everybody's got a cell phone, more than you would think anyway. And I learned that one of the reasons that cell phones became more prevalent in some of those countries is that they didn't have to deal with the whole landline thing. They didn't have that infrastructure in those countries. So here in the U.S., we have this antiquated infrastructure. We're trying to incorporate landlines. They're like, forget the landlines. Let's just go to cell towers. So they went to cell towers, and they skipped right to cell phones. That's what Paul's saying here the Gentiles did. They, They skipped the landlines. They went straight to cell phones. They went straight to grace Grace by faith in Jesus Christ. They didn't even bother getting a landline. But the Jews in Paul's day were getting hung up on their antiquated, Christ-defying approach to salvation through the law. That's the issue. Paul says, Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. 
Not by being righteous, but by faith. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israelites who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Why, Paul? Look at verse 32. Why? Because they did not pursue it, the law, by faith. In other words, if they had pursued the law by faith, the law would have led them right to Christ. But that's not how they did it. They didn't pursue it by faith. They did it as if it were based on works. Why aren't the Jews getting as readily saved in Paul's day as the Gentiles? It's because their works are getting in the way of their faith. Their legalism is getting in the way of their faith. They aren't trusting Christ. They're trusting themselves. They are trusting in their own works instead of trusting in Christ's work on the cross. Let me just illustrate this for you with a, with a great illustration from Tony Evans, one of my favorite preachers. Tony Evans, he, he gives this illustration about sweet tea. Sweet tea. Y'all sweet tea drinkers will know about this. Evans talks about how he, he doesn't understand. He goes into a restaurant. People get this iced tea, and they try to add the sugar to it on their own and stir it up. What's the problem with that? It doesn't work, right? It just kind of soups up on the bottom. It always gets down the bottom, and so you just kind of stir it up and stir it up and stir it up. Keep trying to get it in there. Try to dissolve it all through the tea, but it doesn't work. What do you have to do instead? you got to pour the sugar in while the tea is hot, and then you can pour it over ice and have iced tea. Do you all have any idea what I'm talking about? Some of y'all do. Well, Tony Evans says this. He says, many of you are trying to make it to God's heaven by stirring up your own righteousness. You're as stirring as hard as you can. Got to live right. Got to do better. Got to go to church. Got to give money today. And you stir and you stir and it's still not sweet. It's still not sweet. You've stirred your life the best you can, but stuff is still settling in at the bottom and you're not blending it in. And then he says this, the righteousness Jesus Christ offers is the end of your stirring. It's the end of your working. He'll make you into sweet tea. He is the end of the law to everyone who believes because he's already fulfilled the law for you and put his spirit inside of you. Amen. Isn't that good? And I, I think for some of you right now, you're, you're struggling like, well, you know, I can't work it up. I can't work it up. You need Christ. You need a better way. Jesus Christ offers us a righteousness that is not of our own. It's an imputed righteousness. He did it for us. And you know what? It's a humbling righteousness. It's humbling to say, I can't do it. I need help. I need Jesus. That's hard for us as Americans to say that. I need help. I need a better way. I'm weak. I can't do this on my own. I need the rock, Jesus Christ, the rock of my salvation. Have you said that before, church? Have you gotten to the end of yourself and reached the end of your own striving and cried out to God for help? Put your faith in Jesus Christ, the rock of your salvation. Speaking of the rock, look at the middle of verse 32. Paul says, 
They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Who's the they in verse 32? Everybody see that in your Bibles? Who's the they in verse 32? Make sure when you read your Bible that you always identify the pronouns. Pronouns are really important. The they in verse 32 is the same as the they in verse 31. And the referent is in verse 30. It's Israel. It's the Israelites. So let me put the Israelites in place of that pronoun and read that again. The Israelites, Paul says, have stumbled over the stumbling stone. They have, the Israelites have stumbled over the stumbling stone, verse 33, as it is written in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So here's what God is saying here through the prophet Isaiah 700 years before Christ, here's Paul picking up on what Isaiah says, and God says, behold, I am putting a stone in Zion. I'm putting a, I'm putting a stone in Zion, the cornerstone, the keystone, as some people like to call it. Pennsylvania is the keystone state. Why is it called the keystone state? Because everything started there. It was the beginning. The Declaration of Independence, 1776. The, the Constitution, 1787 in Philadelphia. That's where our country got started. God says here, behold, I am laying a keystone in Zion. Not in Philadelphia, in Zion. In Z what is Zion? Zion is another name for Jerusalem. Isaiah prophesied 700 years before Jesus came to Israel before he was incarnated that God would put a rock in Jerusalem that would be, here's the key statement, a rock of offense. He would be a rock of offense for some. But whoever believes in that rock, says Paul, he will be a rock of salvation. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So we have this rock, we have this stone, not a physical rock, not a literal rock. Paul's speaking in metaphor here. And Paul says that this rock causes some people to stumble. People who are stumbling around in the dark will trip over this rock. It will, according to the quote from Isaiah, be, be something offensive to them, a rock of offense. The Greek word for offense here is the word scandalon. Scandalon, what does that sound like? Like our English word scandalize, right? We derive our English word from this word. Some people are scandalized by this rock. Others put their trust in it, believe it. And those who believe in it, Paul says, will never be put to shame. So who, let me ask you again, Harvest Kit, who's the rock? Y'all got it now? Who's the rock? This is the easiest question I'm going to ask you today, all right? Who's the rock? It's Jesus. By the way, if you have an ESV Bible, can I just point out the bad grammar in that Bible? Take a look at it for a moment. If you have an ESV Bible, notice how Paul says in verse 33 that there is this stumbling stone and this rock of offense. And then he says, whoever believes in him. Everybody see that? Him? How can the rock be a him? How can an it be a him? It's bad grammar. Yes, it's good. The translators screwed that up, obviously, right? Unless they know something. 
Unless they, they know that that rock is indeed a hymn. Unless they know that this is a reference clearly to Christ Jesus. It's a hymn. It, it brings the metaphor right into reality for us that this is the person of Jesus Christ. Some people reject him. Some people receive him. For some people, he's the rock of offense. For other people, he's the rock of salvation. I mean, do y'all remember what, just, just to flesh this out a little bit more about Jesus, do y'all remember when Jesus was born, they took him to the temple, and that old man, Simeon, came and he told Mary something. Do you remember what he told her? That's what every mom wants to hear about their kid. This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. That's what every mom wants to hear. You mean my kid's going to cause problems in this country? Thanks, old man. That's what he told her. He will be, and what's he saying? He's saying the same thing that Paul's saying here. He will be the, the rock of salvation for some. He will be a rock of stumbling to others. He was, he's appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. That's Jesus' destiny. You know, some of you, let me just speak pastorally to some of you right now as you're trying to share your faith and encourage other people. Some of you just need to deal with this. Some of you just need to accept this, that Jesus is divisive in this way. You might think, well, these people, I keep sharing the gospel with them, but they're not accepting it. Am I not doing it right? Am I saying the wrong thing? Do I need to bring them to church more? Do I need to tell them to read this book or whatever? No, maybe, maybe they get it. Maybe they understand. They just don't believe like you and I believe. Jesus is a rock of offense to them. He's a stumbling stone to them, not the rock of salvation. It's got to be that way. God designed it that way. Paul told us it would be that way. It was that way in Paul's day. It's that way in our day. Go ahead and write this down as number two in your notes. Why trust Christ as the rock of your salvation? First of all, because he, he gives you a righteousness, not your own. And secondly, because Christ gives you a right and sure foundation. He is the rock of our salvation. Those who believe in him, that rock, will not be put to shame. Which implicit in that statement is that those who don't believe in him will be put to shame. When I was a kid, I went to this concert with my parents in Austin, Texas, with this singer-songwriter named Michael Card. Y'all ever heard of Michael Card? And I remember, I was just a little guy at the time. I remember being really moved by this, this humble guy who would play the piano and sing passionately. And, you know, if I could be honest, he didn't look like a singer-songwriter. He looked like an accountant. So I was like, this guy's got no image. He's got nothing going for him. He just plays the piano. But, oh, how he could play the piano. And, oh, how passionate he would sing his songs. And I was impressed by that. And he sang this song at that concert that I recognized from the radio. It was a song called Scandalon. And it went like this. The seers and the prophets had foretold it long ago that the long-awaited one would make men stumble. But they were looking for a king to conquer and to kill. Who'd have ever thought he'd be so meek and humble? He will be the truth that will offend them one and all, a stone that makes men stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And many will be broken so that he can make them whole, and many will be crushed and lose their own soul. 
I heard that song as a kid, and I, I, I even knew the lyrics. And I remember thinking, what in the world is that guy singing about? What does that mean? I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't Pastor Tony back then. I was just a dorky Christian kid. I, I, didn't, know, I didn't know what that meant. Now I know. He was singing about Romans 9. And, I, you know, I, I guess I knew enough back then. I knew it was about Jesus because Michael Card gave this great testimony and preached the gospel at his concert. But I didn't know what a stone that makes them stumble and a rock that makes them fall. I don't know. I didn't know what that means. Now I know. He was singing about Romans now, 9. Now I know what scandal on means. He was singing about Jesus, this rock that is salvation for some, but a stumbling stone to others. Look at chapter 10 with me. Paul says this in chapter 10, verse 1. He says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them. Who's the them there? It's the Israelites again. Paul's talking about the Jews. If you remember that statement at the beginning of chapter 9, Paul is brokenhearted over the Jews that keep rejecting Jesus. He says he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart over this matter. But notice he's still going to pray for them. Y'all see that? Brothers, my heart desire and prayer to God for Israelites is that they may be saved. Y'all praying for some people to get saved? Are you now? You're not alone. Paul was praying for that too, that the hard-hearted Israelites in his day would come to Christ. He was crying out to God for that. Verse 2, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Here's the point of verse 2. Zeal for God is good. It is. Zeal without knowledge is bad. Everybody with me? Zeal is good. Conviction is good. Confidence is good. Zeal is good. But if you have zeal for the wrong things, if you have zeal for Muhammad, that is not good. If you have a zeal for communism, that is not good. If you have a zeal for your political party that outweighs your zeal for Jesus Christ, Republican or Democrat, that's not good. If you're thinking that one of these parties in America is going to set up an American utopia and take us to the next place, that is zeal without knowledge. Get informed, people. Let me give you something else to be zealous about. Can I interest you in that? Let me interest you, can I interest you in a zeal that will never, ever disappoint and will take you all the way to the finish line of this life and on into eternity forever? If you got zeal, you want somewhere to put it, put your zeal in this. Put your zeal in Jesus Christ. You can write this down as number three in your notes. Christ Jesus, our true and sure foundation. He gives us zeal with knowledge. He gives us a righteousness that we didn't earn, a righteousness that is not our own, and he gives us zeal with knowledge. Some of you might have heard this last week about the, the Muslim attack on those French Catholics in Nice, France. Three people were killed by a Muslim extremist with a knife, and in fact, one of the victims was a 60-year-old woman 
who was virtually beheaded by this attacker, according to the reports. Beheaded with a knife. That is zeal for religion without knowledge. That is zeal, but the wrong kinds of zeal. And let me, ju- let me not just pick on other countries or other places. I heard this last week that there's actually a ballot initiative right now in the state of Washington that wants to mandate comprehensive sex education for all public schoolers starting in kindergarten with explicit conversations about sexuality and sexual behavior also starting in the fourth grade. Supporters for this initiative say since kids are getting sex ed from the internet anyway, they might as well learn it in the classroom. If you've been following the sexual revolution in our country, you will find quickly in that revolution zeal without knowledge. Not biblical knowledge, anyway. And to that you might say, oh, Pastor, you know, that's not the same as what Paul's talking about in Romans. Paul's talking about religious zeal. Can I just tell you, the sexual revolutionaries in our country, I'm not so sure it isn't religious what they're doing. There is a religious component to it. I'm not sure, so sure they don't bow down to the gods of Venus and Aphrodite. I heard Rod Dreher this last week. He was talking about this new book he wrote called Live Not by Lies. And I, I bought this book last week. I haven't read it yet. I'm excited to read it. But he was talking about this conversation he had with a server in California. And this server was, was arguing with him and trying to convince him about the goodness of communism and how it's a good system and it's a good idea and we should just embrace it here in America. And she was really animated about this. And Rod Dreher just asked her a simple question. He asked, well, well, what about the gulags? And she said, what are gulags? That is zeal without knowledge, folks. Some of you young people, you need to go Google gulags this afternoon and find out what that's about. And granted, the issue with the Jewish people in Paul's day, it wasn't, it wasn't zeal for communism. It wasn't zeal for sin. In many ways, it was zeal for something good. It was a zeal for God. But Paul says in verse 2, it's off target. It's a zeal that's misplaced. In, in fact, I think... What he's getting at here is that it's motivated by something wicked. It's motivated by this evil desire to justify yourself before God in your own power and in your own action, to earn the approval of God instead of receive it by grace. And Paul, by the way, Paul knows all about this. Paul knows about zeal for God without knowledge. Paul says in the book of Philippians, you can read this on the screen, he said, I myself have reasons reasons for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, says Paul. Paul was the Michael Jordan of Judaism. And yet, he would say right after this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Jesus Christ, my Lord. He had zeal for God, but he didn't have knowledge of God's plan. He didn't have Christ. That came later. That came on the road to Damascus. Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as skubala in Greek, as refuse, as dung, as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You know what, you know what God did with Paul? He redeemed his zeal. He did. Paul, can I, you know, Paul didn't stop being zealous. <laughs> he just said, all right, Paul, all that zealousness you have for the wrong thing, let's take that and let's move it over here, okay? God redeemed his zeal. And he gave him a passion and a fervor for the right thing. He has zeal with knowledge now. You know what I've been praying for this last week, Harvest Decatur? You know what I've been praying for myself, for us as a church? I've been praying for zeal with knowledge. I have. Give us that, Lord. Give us a zeal with knowledge for you. Not just knowledge, 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 but give us zeal for that in this world. Give me, fire that up inside of me again. You know, I, you know what I fear as I get older? I'm, I'm, I'm 40-something pastor now. You know what I fear? I don't fear not, not having knowledge. I don't feel, fear being ignorant. You know what I fear? Can I, can I just be straight with you? I fear apathy in my soul. I feel dullness. I, I fear passivity and coldness and defeatism. God, help me with that. I want to be more zealous for Christ as I age, as I get older. Christ offers us that. He offers us zeal with knowledge. Lord, give us that as a church, I pray. Zeal with knowledge. Paul says in verse 2, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. Paul bears witness to this because that was him. That was him before Christ got a hold of him. I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. That word for knowledge is the Greek word epigenosis. Paul's not talking about head knowledge here. He's not talking about book knowledge. He's talking about revealed knowledge, experiential knowledge, the knowledge of God's plan for salvation. And Paul says, look at verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God, They are ignorant in two ways. First of all, they don't acknowledge that they can't achieve righteousness on their own power, fulfill the law, and they're also ignorant of the fact that Christ has supplied that righteousness to them by faith. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Go ahead and write this down as number four in your notes. Here's a final point. Christ offers you the end of the law. Christ offers you the end of the law. Christ offers you a better way to be saved than by works or by obedience to the law. Let's talk about this in verse 4, because this is, this is an amazing statement right here. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
Christ is the end of all. You might say, that sounds great, Pastor Tony. That sounds great. What does that mean again? What does that mean that Christ is the end of the law? Well, the Greek word here is telos. And you might say, well, that, that doesn't help me either, Pastor Tony. What, what does telos mean? Well, I'll give you a couple options here. Christ is the telos of the law. Does that mean, does that mean that Christ is the termination of the law? In other words, the law doesn't apply to us anymore. It doesn't have power over us anymore. You know, like I'm reaching the, the telos of this sermon and I'm about to be done and it's going to be final and then we can all go to Culver's. Is that what we're talking about here? Like Christ has ended the law? Or, here's a second option. Does telos mean that Christ is the goal of the law? Is he the goal of the law? Is he, let me say it this way, the, the culmination of the law? Christ has culminated or fulfilled the law. So there's two options there. So let me just ask you all, what do you all think? Let's have interpretation by voting this morning. What, what do you all say about that? How many of you all think it's the first one that tell us, Christ is the tell us of the law, means that he's the end of the law. It's over, it's done, it doesn't have power over us anymore. Any votes for the first one? A few really sheepish hands going up there. Okay. All right, let's ask number two. How many of y'all think that Christ is the goal of the law, the culmination of the law? Okay, a few more hands. How many of y'all think it's both? <laughs> Which leads to my next question, who are y'all voting for on Tuesday? <laughs> Just kidding, just kidding. I really, I don't want to know. Don't ask me, I'm not going to tell you. I think it could be both. Both the goal and the end of the law, but I'll tell you, I'm more partial to seeing Christ as the goal of the law, as the culmination of the law. We recognize that the law has been fulfilled by Christ and we realize that our fulfillment of the law isn't done by obedience, it's accomplished by faith in Christ. What did Jesus say about his relationship to the law? I have not come to abolish the law, but what? But fulfill it. That's how Christ is the end of the law, he fulfills it. And here's, here's the reason why this is so important. Whether you said both, whether you said one or two, I, you know, I want you to get this. Robert Mounts, he says it this way. He says, righteousness comes by faith and faith alone. God does not allow himself to be put in debt to people in their best efforts. God doesn't do that. We don't bring faith and works to God for salvation. We just bring Christ. We bring our faith in him. Because Christ is the end of the law. He's the fulfillment of the law. Like the, the old hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Mount says this, he says, the only thing God requires of people is that they not persist in trying to earn what they can only receive as a totally free gift. Christ is the telos of the law. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. 
in that way. And here's the beauty, okay? Here's the beauty of having Christ as the rock of your salvation. If you have Christ as the rock of your salvation, even this morning, when you trust him as the rock of your salvation, he gives you a righteousness, not your own. He gives you a right and sure foundation. He gives you a zeal with knowledge. And he gives you the end of the law. Isn't that good, Harvest Decatur? Aren't you glad you don't have to earn your salvation yourself or, or keep it by your own doing? It's an act of grace. And let me ask you, do you prefer Christ as the rock of your salvation to the rock of your stumbling? Let me just remind you, like I said at the beginning, he's going to be one or the other. The rock of your salvation or the rock of your stumbling. Which one is he for you? I'll close with this. This is the telos of my sermon. Yesterday was October 31st, and it was Reformation Day. Did y'all know that? That's some other holiday too, but I forget which one it is. For me, that's Reformation Day because 503 years ago, the great reformer Martin Luther affixed his 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, thereby launching the Protestant Reformation. Unwitting at the time. He didn't know he was doing that, but that's what he did. Well, Martin Luther's great beef with the Catholic Church at that time is that they had so corrupted the doctrine of justification by faith alone that was clearly articulated here in the book of Romans that he, he had to recover it through the Protestant Reformation. And the church had, in Luther's mind, made salvation this weird mixture of faith and works, this weird, unbiblical mixture. It was, you know, to use Tony Evans' analogy, they were trying to stir up the sugar in the sweet iced tea, to sweeten the iced tea. And one of Martin Luther's final words that he ever wrote, by the way, he just he followed his conviction in this all the way to his death. And one of the last things that he wrote was this. This is on the screen. He said, we are beggars. This is true. Rumor has it that this statement was actually found in his clothes, written on a piece of paper after he died. We are beggars. That is true. What in the world did Luther mean by that? Well, I think he meant by that, that we are completely dependent on God for everything in our life. And I think he means by that, that the gospel is a message where God gives salvation to beggars. To people who don't offer anything in return, who just receive what God gives us. I've actually heard evangelism defined this way. Someone said that Christian evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's us. This is where I found Christ. This is where I found bread. Go find him too. The nature of our salvation, the nature of the gospel, is that we are beggars, totally 
dependent on Christ, totally dependent, forgive me for the mixed metaphor, on the rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ. He gives us everything. And we deserve nothing. So which is it, church? Rock of salvation, stone of stumbling. Jesus is the rock. What kind of rock is he for you? Let's bow in a word of prayer. For those of you who know Jesus Christ as the rock of your salvation, let me remind you this morning that because you put your faith in him, you will never be put to shame. He will lead you after death right into the presence of the Lord. And when Christ returns, we will receive new resurrection bodies. And we will live in the presence of God forever, untainted by sin, no longer affected by war and poverty and sadness and despair and our sin nature. If Jesus Christ is not your Savior this morning, put your faith in Him. Believe, believe his death, his resurrection. Lord, I confess to you this morning that you are the rock of my salvation. I confess that I was a rotten sinner. And there was no hope without you, Lord. But praise be to God, I have new life in Jesus Christ. I am alive, filled with the Holy Spirit. Lord, I see evidence of that in the men and women who are gathered here in this room. Your Holy Spirit is in them. Thank you for that, Lord. We don't deserve your salvation. We are unworthy, Lord, but we are totally grateful to God, if I could be so bold to pray, too, for our church body right now. God, give us zeal for you. 
It's too easy in this world to get distracted with our creature comforts. To get distracted, Lord, and become apathetic and cold and dull. God, give us zeal. Zeal with knowledge, Lord, I pray. Amen, church. Y'all want that?